Welcome hey. to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. Uh, Hi, Joe have, Patrice. Yeah, you have heard the interjections of Catherine Rubino and Chris Williams. We are here all to discuss, as we do every week, the big stories in legal of the week before that we covered here at Above the Law. And with all of that introductory stuff said, I mean, most of you have, I assume, been longtime listeners, new In the weather here. New listeners, welcome. Uh, everyone else, uh, you know the drill. That means we begin with some small talk so small that we can talk. seem so that we can <laughs> we can seem like we're normal people. Uh, small talk. Uh, we just came out of a holiday weekend. Everybody good on that? No one was like stuck at Burning Man or anything. Yeah, unlike uh, no. former acting solicitor general Neil Katyal, uh, I did not get stuck at Burning Man. So points for me. I did see Katya always stuck there, and that's a former guest of the show, uh, actually. So mm. uh, good to see he's okay. He made I it out. Have, I didn't have one of my uh, my spinny multicolored fan hat, so I wasn't able to, <laughs> I wasn't able to attend this year. Yeah, um, yeah, Burning yeah. Man. Yeah. So the real tragedy was not the the rains that that made it the ground muddy. It was that hat. Yeah, like, I don't know if there are fashion police at Burning Men, but arrests should have been made. Uh, there are no, definitely not. I've seen lots of pictures throughout the years. Um, but for those wondering what we're talking about, uh, there was a story this week uh, that former Solicitor General Neil Katyal, um, current Hogan Levels partner, was at Burning Man. And he posted a picture of himself wearing a multicolored spinning top beanie or hat of some sort uh, that is attached to the story. So you should definitely check that out to get the visual, the true point of what I mean, we're talking look, about here <laughs> yeah uh, i mean it, burning man it is is a vibe uh, <laughs> oh, so. okay we have to retire the word vibe now <laughs> i mean i don't i don't know so that's a rich why would we retire the word vibe? you then? used it you, you used it utterly uncool yes oh, that's what he's oh saying. we're declaring I, that uh, mere usage by me that makes is what he's it, saying Okay. <laughs> Which is a high bar. I mean, it has been, I mean, you're like a decade behind using Vibe. So, you know, there's, it's, there's some, there's some aging, but once it becomes relevant you, to Joe Patrice. What are you talking about? Vibe has been a word always. Like it's always it, it been It has increased in popularity over the last like three years, right? You know uh, that. I mean, that's why you're using it right I now. I mean, it's been in headlines of mine dating back three years. I'm looking at one now. <laughs> I've been doing the, yeah, no, this is, uh, that is not a, that is not Wait, no, slang. did you just literally... And, and the, and the Joe, fact that you all Joe. think it is slang suggests to Joe. me that you're all behind. Yeah, Joe, you yeah. just literally did a real-time vibe check. Yeah, yeah. Do you, uh, get, it? Do you get it now? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it seems to me as though you are all just behind on the times since I've been doing this for years. So it's... Uh, once again, take. once again, okay. I'm... I'm okay. the one with my finger on the pulse of okay. the, youth. the youth and culture, yeah. while the rest uh, okay. of you do the stuff you do. That's probably what's happening here. Yeah. Well then, uh, fellow kids, how was y'all's weekend? <laughs> my weekend was great. Hung out with some friends, enjoyed the fall-like weather for the first real weekend of college football, something I personally enjoy quite a bit. Uh, watched Deion Sanders revolutionize the Colorado football program. Uh, that's, yeah. that's what I did. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was wild. Uh, I tell you, I don't know that I thought for sure that Dion would win in his opening game against the uh, runners up to the national championship from last year, TCU. I didn't necessarily think that he would win, but they think they were 21 point underdogs going into the game. And I was like, there's no way Dion yeah, Sanders loses by 21 points. Yeah, they're going to beat that spread for sure. Yeah. But yeah, no, um, big win. That was exciting. It was an exciting game for sure. Yeah. What'd you do, Chris? I went to the beach. Um, oh, there's a, that's there's like a, a real ho- summer thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was real hot to contrast the water, which was frigid for some reason. Welcome to the beaches in the Northeast. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking I'm used to beaches in like, cause I'm thinking of the beaches I was at before, but out of the country. So like, this is my welcome back to the States still. Yeah. But yeah it was growing really up, cool. we always went to the Jersey shore and the water is, is definitely like ice picks into your feet. Yeah. It was, it was brick out. There was one point where like we had some water and like a, you know those um those sparkling juice bottles, the glass ones. We decided to fill out with water, and it got hot. So I had the bright idea of seeing if I could just put it in the ocean for a little bit to cool down. So I was just a, a goof a goofball with a glass bottle in the ocean. It didn't work, <laughs> but, but it was still a nice it was a nice excuse to get out the house. Went to uh, Chicken Bone Beach in Atlantic City. It was the formerly segregated part of the beach. Hence the name. It's because they didn't allow black folks to eat on the boardwalk. So they bring their own food and oh. uh, they didn't have the cleaning folks didn't really take care of the beach. So there'll be chicken bone. But yeah, it was it was a nice beach. Sounds awesome. How about you, Joe? Yeah, no, I watched watch sports just like you did. Very exciting times. I'm getting some technical errors on my computer and I just want to make sure that those weren't going to debilitate the show, but they seem like they're not going to. So I thought that you I can multitask like that. Well, I mean, it, it, it could have been single tasking if it, had, <laughs> if it was going to screw up the podcast. So felt like it was, uh, it was worth it. I appreciate that. All right. Well, uh, with that all finished, we'll uh, transition to our topics. Uh, the first topic of the week. What do we want to do? Well, I guess uh, Amy Coney Barrett had some things to say. Uh, we'll kick off with some Supreme Court talk. Yeah, uh, Amy Coney Barrett gave um, uh, some comments at a Seventh Circuit gathering, uh, and she notably did not talk about the uh, ethics quandary that the court finds himself with, finds himself in with uh, her colleagues, uh, mostly Clarence Thomas, but also uh, Samuel Alito and a little bit John Roberts. But she didn't talk about that at all. What she did mention, though, was talking about how she thought it was less than ideal that the Supreme Court justices are now sort of public figures. She talked fondly about when she was a a clerk of the court, which was in the late 90s, that people who would be visiting the Supreme Court would ask the justices to like take their picture. Not not that they wanted a picture of the justices, but rather, can you take my picture? Uh, because, you know, it's pre-selfie days. And they didn't recognize that it was, in fact, a Supreme Court justice because they weren't recognizable like that. Um, and she said that she thinks that that's better. I don't think justices should be recognizable in that sense, which is, whoa, um, a lot. I mean, it says a lot that she wants the Supreme Court to be in that kind of level of obscurity when these are nine unelected people who have the ability to radically transform the rights and duties of people in this nation, right? I don't think that that's a job that you get to do and hide behind obscurity. Yeah, they're the hi- they're the highest the highest officers of one branch of government. One would assume we should know who they are. You should know who they are, and I also I actually kind of 
I call BS on her whole logic that they weren't recognizable. You know, like, yeah, there were, I'm sure a lot of people didn't know what Souter looked like, but the, there were, there were some grandstanding justices at that point who were very aggressively making it known what they looked like. I mean, I think uh, particularly when you're talking about people who are deciding to visit the Supreme Court, they probably are folks who have a higher sense of who the justices are. But I, I do imagine that justices probably could operate in public without that sort of notoriety, right? I think that without sort of a robe or even necessarily formal clothes on, even someone like Scalia probably could go grocery store shopping without being stopped constantly. Yeah, maybe. Probably, you know, it, if you if you put him not in a suit and in that context, it's entirely possible that people wouldn't recognize him. I think that that's, that's fair. But it's not fair to say that Supreme Court, ju- that's somehow better that justices should be allowed to do that. It's not like she thinks that the president should be able to operate in obscurity, right? right? That's also the highest figure in an entire branch of government. And I don't think that it's fair to say the other. And she went on to say that, uh, that, that, which she talked about sort of the failing popularity and approval rating of the Supreme court. And she uh, said that that was created by that. What that did was create misimpressions of what the court does. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, obviously, it's not a misimpression to say that the Supreme Court took away rights yeah. <laughs> in the Dobbs decision. It's, right? uh, it, it's created a, an accurate impression from possibly the first time. <laughs> well, the, 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 I want to go back to this recognizability thing mm-hmm. because the, there's a couple of angles to this that are worth exploring a little bit further. One of which is if her complaint is the security issue, that also came up in the news last week, which is that Clarence Thomas mm-hmm. – uh, finally disclosed that he took some private plane trips paid for by Harlan Crow. Notably, he only told us about ones that happened post-Dobbs, post-Dobbs leak, I should say. Are those the first ones he ever took? Almost certainly not. But he, those are the ones that he disclosed. And then he spitefully informed us all that the reason we did it, he had to do that, was because, you know, after the Dobbs leak... Uh, what a fantastic descriptor that you use there, spitefully, because I think that the uh, the justifications that uh, Thomas put in his his disclosure was absolutely spiteful. Right, and it was well, because because the idea, of course, well, one the the opinion was going to come out eventually anyway, so it has nothing to do with the leak. That, that's the part that constantly gets me is the these. Uh, it just changes disin- when people knew about yeah, this, the decision, not their reaction to the decision. This disingenuous bullshit where they act like right. It was the fact literally that it was a one month. Earlier. It was a yeah, month difference. Right. So put that to one side. Uh, but his his argument is that he takes money from billionaires who have business tangentially before the court, if not directly in front of the court, because we make him. Because it, it's our fault that that has to happen. It's because, victim blaming. Yeah, uh, really, really bad. But. To the extent, and also, as Ellie Mistal, former co-host of this show, pointed out on TV uh, last week, if that's the argument, then we should, as taxpayers, demand back all the money that Congress allotted to them for security last year. Because there was a bit, this was the reason why the Supreme Court demanded more money from the government for security, because they blamed this Dobbs thing. Mm-hmm. And if the 700 
billion or a million or whatever we threw million I guess we threw in for that is not doing getting the job done then we should get it back so that so if she's making this argument that it was better to be in obscurity because it allowed them to avoid security concerns uh yeah great well you've chosen a life as the leader of a branch of government so <laughs> sorry uh but the second point that I think is more worth focusing in on is that you know sometimes there's these in argumentation, you can assume, you can kind of assume and imply an impact where there isn't really one and you need to kind of state out what it is. She, when she says it was better when we operated in obscurity, the question then it really is beg, why? Mm-hmm. Like, why, why do you think you were better in obscurity? Do you think that you made decisions better in obscurity? Because that isn't something that anybody seems to be saying. So, really, what you're saying is you, didn't want to ever be blamed for making the wrong decision. Right. Uh, which flies in the face of the whole concept of having judges. Uh, they're supposed to be out there and notice- notable uh, to the extent that they stand by these things. Uh, if they believe in them and they believe it is right, then that is what they do. Obviously, with all the security concerns that we rightfully have given them money to deal with, like this idea that they should be able to pass judgment silently is really a problem because then that's that's the implied issue because she Mm -hmm. kind of says it like oh it was better when we weren't being harassed she kind of implies being harassed but really what she's talking about is she wants no accountability yeah yeah and i think that you can also glean that attitude from when she talks about the misimpressions that people have based on an actual understanding of what's going on. And I think it's it's kind of this kind of bullshit that says, oh, the court is this perfect body that just calls balls and yeah. strikes and just this is just what the law means. And if you don't think that, you're wrong. Right. And that's what I'm trying to get at. And I didn't say it nearly as eloquently. That like the 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 impact to what she's saying like that she's kind of leaving out there unsaid is that she believes in a world where accountability should not exist, mm-hmm. where the justices should not be treated as though they have made a decision. Right. They have merely reported what the Constitution says. They didn't do anything, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lie. And it's a and it's an obvious one. That's the part that's. Yeah, I, I, I think that the obviousness cannot be overstated. There may be certain justices, if you look throughout the course of of the, mm-hmm. the, the course of the court that really kind of adhere to that worldview and really do kind of try as best to not Im- to not read politics onto these court decisions. But even if that was ever true, and I'm not sure it ever was, it is definitely not true of the current court. And yeah. it's definitely not true of Amy Coney Barrett's jurisprudence. I mean, there's a reason... There's a reason there's nine of them, right? As opposed to, and obviously that's not fixed by the Constitution, but as opposed to one. Right. Uh, the reason why there is a panel is because it is assumed that mm-hmm. there is not one glaringly correct answer all the time and that someone would have to, I'm going to use bold term here, judge what the result would be. <laughs> right. Uh, and given that that's Judgment true, is inherently subjective. Yeah, and that, that the in- accountability needs to go with that. And it's really... Uh, a, frightening that this is the way people feel that they can talk in public. Absolutely. And it also waves away the legitimate complaints that her fellow justices have raised about the court's current trajectory, like saying that it's it's somebody who doesn't understand the workings of the court when they criticize the court. Do you think that Elena Kagan doesn't understand the court? Because she's been on it a lot longer than you have. Yeah. I mean, this is just, you know, it's just what happens when you put 
people who probably should not be on courts on courts uh, for a lifetime. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, will, uh, I, I do yeah. want to say I do think it is interesting that it is it is an anomaly the celebrity that American judges have. Like for example, say the people most most members most people in Canada don't know the members of their Supreme Court. So like I do get that you know this was her way of saying I sure do wish it didn't have accountability, but I do find it interesting looking at like the cult of personality that surrounds our jurists um, that she's hating on a problem that is her fault. I mean like well not her not her fault in particular, but she's attending public events where like there was a trying to talk about how there's not clearly biased decisions happening where they are. You know it's it's a it's a weird move to be a figurehead of the popularity of the court and also want to abstain from it. Um, and there are other countries that do it differently, but I just yeah. thought that was interesting. Well, I mean, part of it is, of course, is parliamentary systems don't nearly, it don't give nearly as much power, generally speaking, to Supreme Courts because, because the government is arguably more accountable at all times. You can change both the executive and legislature at the same time, uh, theoretically. But it's true. And, and look, it, a lot of people still can't recognize Supreme Court justices. That's the other part of this. Mm-hmm. This is so ridiculous. Like, we are talking about it's not that more people recognize now versus before it's always been a small segment of the population it's just that more of that segment of the population is angry right now uh because she's blowing past that large swaths of the american population don't know anything about any of this stuff they have a hard time recognizing presidents so right (laughs) like anyway Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went... To a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. All right. Well, let's uh, let's do some sandwiching uh, because so that we don't have to keep talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, Big law conversation. Yes. Yes. The chair at Crowell and Mooring sent out an email to everyone, some might argue, uh, bragging about his summer vacation. Uh, He took two weeks vacation and wrote to everybody about it, saying that it was actually a good thing that he took a vacation, that it was hard to unplug because you kind of feel like you're so important to the workings of your case and in his case to the operation of the firm as a whole, but that it's important to unplug, to rely on your colleagues to get the uh, work done. And when you come back, you're actually better at your job. But a lot of folks at the firm, we heard from, (laughs) complaining about the email, saying that it was bragging, that younger attorneys at the firm, associates, younger partners, uh, did not feel like they have the ability to take those sort of two weeks off and go go out and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and take the time off. And it was tone deaf to say that as the leader of the firm, I can do this when you clearly can't. And I, I, I think that I'm sympathetic 
to -hmm. that worldview. And I think that if you're in the middle of a run of cases or deals or whatever, where you're really churning out the hours where, you know, it looks like you you will never have two minutes to yourself or six minutes as the case may be to yourself ever again, that having somebody be like, well, I just took two weeks of vacation might, might, you might feel a certain way in response. But I kind of took the take that I think this was offered in the with the best possible of intentions. And I think that what the leadership of the firm is trying to do is say that it's important for all of us to take two weeks vacation. The only way that a junior associate feels like they're capable, they're able to unplug for two weeks is when they see it modeled by leaders of the firm, you know, all the way down or up the chain as, as the case may be. And I think that it's important to say that this is something we value look at even the most important lawyers at the firm are doing it. You should do it too. Yeah. I kind of took that read of it too. I like it. I, I just think back to when I was an associate and like, yeah, you had four weeks of vacation and it was obvious you were never going to take four mm-hmm. weeks, right? There was never a scenario where you were going to do that. And like at best you took a day here and a day there. Uh, the idea of a senior attorney saying, no, I don't want you taking a day here or a day there. I'm actually going to go for two weeks, and it's good, and it's important that you do that. That is valuable. And it's Mm -hmm. valuable because I'm sure the managing partner does not reflect what some practice group leaders believe. And some practice group leaders are going to be jerks about somebody saying they're going to take two weeks off. And it's important to say, I'm doing the same thing that he did. I'm mm-hmm. going to try to cover my work the same way he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, and that's valuable. Uh, so I, I did read it that way, too. I do, too. And I think that this is a great first step. I think there are other things that firms can and some are doing in order to encourage folks to take those vacations. Uh, some firms are allowing folks to count a certain number of hours, maybe 40 hours of vacation time towards their billable hour requirement. Um, Obviously, that goes a step further in saying this is something we, if we let you bill for it, it's obviously something we care about you doing. (laughs) So I I think that that there there are more things that people can do, but I think this is a great step in that direction, saying, you know, and, and, you know, you, you we've talked about that I host another podcast uh, and oftentimes talk to leaders of firm in a in a kind of a con- convert conversational way. And one thing I always wonder about is how do firm leaders know what it's like for associates on the ground, right? Because firm leaders are like this is what our firm does, and it's like that is not necessarily what first year associate X life is like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And there's how do you go from what our stated goals and stated culture wants to be, and ha- the how actual attorneys live their lives at your firm. And I think that there's always going to be a gap between what you want and what the lived experience is. But this modeling sort of behavior is one way to bridge that gap, mm-hmm. or at least start the process of bridging the gap. <laughs> I don't think any of it happens overnight. Yeah, I think the next frontier is the allowing it to count in your end of year billable totals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, everyone were assumed that, you know, say it was for weeks or whatever, if everyone was getting 40 hours that week or preferably 60, that counting as 60 or 80 or whatever, when it comes to the final meeting of minimums, I think that would do go along. A much, that's a much stronger way of encouraging that, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if firms care about it, they'll let you bill for it. 
Mm-hmm. That's been true when certain firms let uh, recruiting count for billable totals, some let diversity initiatives count towards your end of year totals. And that's a way for the firm to say, this is what we care about. You know, I, I worked at firms with two different models. One, uh, you had the had it and it rolled over for the first six months and then you would lose it, but you'd get more mm-hmm. or whatever. But even at there, like, HR would, would count up your past ones and still give it to you if you really had a, a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, then the next place I worked had the same, that same model, but ultimately changed it to one that I understand the change and I welcome the change, but I think the change was somewhat problematic, which was getting paid out for unused at the end of the year, uh, which it is useful to the extent that, you know, what good is having six weeks in your pocket if it's all going to expire anyway mm-hmm. uh, to you? That said, uh, it definitely set me on the incentive of why would I even, why would I try to make a two week if I can get an extra week's pay out of this? So, I mean, partially because I'm I, at the time still trying to pay off loans and all like that's that's, yeah, that's like a, a, that's nice a loan bonus. payment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it is it's interesting. It, it's a it's a tough nut to crack. I agree with you. I think this guy was trying to. Yeah, I think that I think that the intent was mm-hmm. correct. I think that this sort of attitude towards and, and again, the email was not just I took a vacation. You should, too. It was saying things like. We have to all trust our coworkers, and this is how you do it. And I didn't just take the time off. I unplugged. I didn't respond to emails because it's very different to really take even just a one-week vacation versus a two-week vacation where you're actually still billing six hours a day, which is still a vacation from your normal, but it's different mentally and your ability to recharge and come back as a better lawyer when it's over is just different. Yeah. I, and I, mean, and, and look, I think I, it was, I think it was a good, I think it's a good step for sure. Yeah. No, like, look, if you think that that isn't reflecting the lived experience, uh, now you have something to cite. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I should be getting this time off. Look, the the leadership says I should be. Right. Or, you know, even saying to, I took a vacation, but my, the partner, I ex-partner constantly required me to do the following. So I couldn't do what mm-hmm. Phil suggested we do when truly unplugged because yeah. of this. And it's, it's a good model to have out there at the firm. Yeah. All right. So uh, coming to the end here, uh, Clarence Thomas's former, a bunch of Clarence Thomas's former clerks, not all of them, but the vast majority of them, put out an open letter in which they, uh, I mean, this stood up for his, him in this ethical mess that uh, he is in and talk about how he is unimpeachable, which is probably the wrong choice of words as he is most <laughs> definitely impeachable, but uh, they should have said beyond reproach, maybe. I don't know. Like this, that's actually the takeaway I had to this. Like, there's a lot of takeaways here. The idea that John Eastman, who is on trial, high, high likelihood of going to prison, uh, that they let him sign this, and federal judges, like say James Ho, felt, yeah, I'm cool having. I my want name. my name right next to Eastman. Yeah, right next to John this Eastman. Is, this is yeah. Uh, yeah, and also these are people fundamentally who have a vested interest in their association with the name Clarence Thomas meaning something good in the future. Look, uh, it, that said, like it, that, that point, and a lot of people have talked about this elsewhere, but like Judge Katzis and Rao, they, they, they are notably absent from this. It's mm-hmm. almost as though they looked at it and said, I'm not sure I want to be on a document with Johnny. I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. But the other part of it uh, that really got me and it, you know, Ho uh, 
being a, an example of this too, but also there were people on there who have real careers as big law attorneys and all. Mm -hmm. it, it's how badly written it was. Like it, that's the part that got me. Like it, they were assigning their name to something that read like a juvenile wrote it. it. You know, it sets up with this like flowery, rejected from your high school lit or literary magazine style conceit of we're not going to name Clarence Thomas in the first six paragraphs. <laughs> we're going to hint at him as this unspoken protagonist. Like uh, just just really like, the stuff that like it was a dark and stormy night style writing. <laughs> uh, they, I already mentioned the going with unimpeachable when they should have got uh, sure. gone with beyond reproach. Uh, things where it, it could have been resolved and there would be no issue if someone had written a second draft. Like, it, it, instead of just like, just like bang, yeah, somebody got it done, let's just sign it. Just <laughs> drunkenly typing out the first thing they thought and then going, let's roll with it and somehow convincing a bunch of people to sign on to it anyway. Really, really crazy how bad this was. And, you know, it makes you think, like you're talking about Supreme Court justice clerks who are always valued in the legal space for being, you know, you've, learn to write at the highest level and um, apparently not only does at least one of them whoever the main author was not know how to write the rest of them don't seem particularly interested in editing either I, I don't know like it, I'm just thinking if I were the person and somebody was attacking someone that I cared about their reputation and this letter crossed my desk as the, the attorney in me would have sent back a very, very detailed red line. <laughs> it would have been a red line that was like in the... Send in the red lines, yeah. It, 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 the red line that, to the extent where it might have outweighed the original black ink, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. I just, oh, it, it, there's passive voice. It's just, it's oh so bad. Not a great example of legal writing. I and mean, the other thing is, do you think that folks, folks just signed it without really reading it too closely? yeah. And that's the thing. Like, it's something of this magnitude, right? You're talking about it's something your you boss want. and mentor. Yeah. yeah. But also, it's something that's designed to get attention, right? Mm -hmm. You don't just sign this so it goes in some file somewhere. You, you, you sign this, it's written so that people like you write stories about it. Right. They're hoping it goes the other direction, perhaps the tone of the story, but they want their name out there in the public conversation as taking a stance against the, you know, the questioning of their former boss, Clarence yeah. Thomas. They want to make a stand here, and it's a terrible stand. I thought about, I, I thought a lot about, uh, so sentencing memos is something that I have a lot of experience in, uh, having done a lot of white-collar defense, uh, both mm -hmm. writing them, as well as I often was brought in to edit ones that other people had written. And, and you know, it, it's a fine line, because obviously when you're asking for leniency, you want to humanize the defendant. Mm -hmm. uh, the now convicted or usually pleaded defendant. But you also, you can't lean so much on humanizing that it becomes kind of a, a glaring red flag that you're ignoring what's the substance is, you know, mm -hmm. like, and that, and that was always a, a, a balance. Uh, and you would see these sentencing memos that other firms would put in for their, you know, our co-defendants and stuff. And you'd just be, you'd roll your eyes like these like 30 pages of 
all of the saintly charity work that they started doing immediately after they became a target of the investigation. Uh, all of that being 30 pages and then like five pages of, and you know, hey, we did some bad stuff. People see that discrepancy. You have to kind of be upfront about what you did wrong and how it has impacted you for going forward and why that therefore requires you not to get to this sentence. Mm -hmm. And you use the humanization to like tell that story, but you can't let it be this chunk of stuff that is independent of the story and act like that stuff means you don't have, you know, you don't get sentenced. Uh, that's what this read like to me. Uh, when I read it, it's like two thirds of the document is just Clarence Thomas had such a hard life growing up and he's so cool and he was so nice to all of us and he was such a warm and loving leader and blah, 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 one paragraph. And, you know, people are accusing him of stuff, but we don't think that he would ever do anything wrong. Anyway, here's signatures. <laughs> uh, and that's like, like that's one of those. That's what I thought of. Like it was one of those bad sentencing memos, mm -hmm. like the, the sentencing memo that says, oh, this guy's totally guilty. The, those are the ones where, you know, you don't get the uh, request to go to the club fed prison camp, you know? Yeah. Anyway, that was that was my personal take when I read it. Uh, but yeah, very bad. Uh, we don't know which of them wrote it. Several of us on Twitter or X or whatever the hell, uh, made clear that we have guesses. Uh, <laughs> all of us kept coming back to one person, uh, one of the clerks, but we'll see. Maybe we'll never know. Maybe it'll be like the Dobbs. The world leak. may never know. Maybe it'll be like the Dobbs leak that Alito did. Or wait, oh, <laughs> that we also don't know who did it. So not like how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. Oh, okay. Which we actually Good don't reference. know. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Another le week in legal news in the books. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. You should subscribe to the show so you get new episodes when they come out. You should leave reviews, do stars right things uh that all helps people see it uh you should be reading above the law so you see these and more stories as they come out you can follow all of us on the socials uh it's atl blog uh i'm joseph patrice at twitter and joe patrice at blue sky uh catherine's catherine one at both of those places chris is rights for rent on the x i don't think still probably not on blue sky is my guess Peace. Uh, no, nope, no, not even no. close. Oh. Not even close. I was just <laughs> mostly tuning just, you out. Yeah, try, try to pay just even the modicum <laughs> of attention. Uh, also, you should check out the Jabot, which is Catherine's other show oh, that yeah. she hosts. I, all, the guest on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable. You should check too. out the other shows on the Legal Talk Network. And with all of that now, I'm going to say that we are done. Peace, Peace. now, for real. Sure. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.